I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. Welcome to School of Everything Else. Castlevania, the Netflix show. No further. My generals, in killing my wife... Humanity has proven to me that they don't deserve the Earth. We will scour them off the land. My father, he's gone mad. And now he's going to destroy the world. Human scheme and betray. They all must die. Imagine it. without humans under endless night my god Dracula has to be destroyed we can't fail stand back we're all gonna die all of us enough With us this time around, we have Toby Jungius of Through the Wind Door. Hello, Toby. You must be the Belmont. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> this, like Star Trek, Halloween, Prince of Persia, Fast and Furious, God of War, and Spider-Man, adds itself to a long-running series of installments, most of the rest of which have very helpful signifying subnames, like Wrath of Khan, H20... The Sands of Time, Tokyo Drift, Chains of Olympus, and Far From Home. And just like all of the above, Castlevania has the temerity to have no subtitle, forcing anyone talking about it to constantly signify which iteration they are speaking of. So I think we need a signifier, and it should be better than simply Netflix, due to the disposability and temporary nature of the most popular streaming service, as well as the word Netflix being a brand name not in any way related to the story. So I have chosen Dynasties. Castlevania Dynasties or Dynasties? Do we go with Dynasties? Dynasties is the British mm. I think American... I think Dynasty sounds better because in my head, Dynasty is the Joan Collins TV show Show from the, the 80s. Terms. Sorry, Dynasty is. But then again, well, it's probably called Dynasty by America. Well, improved yeah. by shoulder pads and perms, you know. Okay, so yeah, shoulder pads and perms come with it, but... Dynasties or dynasties describing a series of bloodlines and power plays as an array of absolutely fascinating characters vie for the destruction or enslavement of the human race or struggle against the odds and against self-destructive human nature to defend it. The stakes really are that high and somehow this show makes that believable. There's one bit in particular where I'm like, oh shit, this could actually happen. 
It's an anime-style animated series with a Western writing team. It was overseen by Warren Ellis, writer of many comics that inspired me in the early 2000s, like Transmetropolitan, The Authority, and Planetary. Unfortunately, in more recent years, he has been found to be problematic, grooming fans in unsavory fashion. So, subsequently, he was ejected from this project it happened between seasons three and four, but they pretty much wrapped season four at this at that stage, and it's ongoing. And they, while they have technically finished, there are planned spin-offs that he will not be involved with moving forward. The I think that's about all we need to say about Warren Ellis on this show. Um, the storyline of Castlevania Dynasties loosely covers the third NES title, which saw human vampire hunter Trevor Belmont half-vampire son of Dracula, Alucard, and elemental mage Cypher Belnades storming Dracula's castle to dispatch him. They had a pirate buddy to help them, but he's not in this. Uh, He can climb up walls. But this series expands upon and deepens that very simple, 8-bit, pixelated, almost wordless adventure into something far closer to what Game of Thrones should have been. Similarly, it has the flavour of The Witcher, both the game series and the Netflix series, but I found Dynasties more playful and witty in its execution. It takes characters from the games and adds new ones to the mix. Everyone behaves and speaks like an adult. Everyone is nursing pain of varying depths. Everyone has a past which informs upon their actions. There are betrayals, but fewer than you might think. There is sickening violence, but it usually wraps up and pulls away after we get the gist of what's happening. And unlike Game of Thrones, it doesn't lean on that violence for shock value. It's not. It doesn't feel like it's constantly trying to ramp it up. Mm. It also has, and this is in stark contrast um, with uh, What If, fantastic voice direction. Like, the performances in this are absolutely amazing. And there were multiple voice directors across the four seasons... But it feels like they took a leaf out of Andrea Romano's book. Every line is laden with meaning. Everything that everyone Mm. says reveals more about them and the way other people react to them reveals more about them in turn. The vocal performances do feel so unique when compared against other animated shows I've watched, whether Western in origin or dubbed anime. There's such a sort of industry of it that you just get used to a lot of the tropes of voice acting Mm. and in other examples it feels as if the voices are emphasized more through a combination of exaggerated delivery to gel with the style of animation or the tone of their shows Mm. and perhaps the audio levels are just a little bit higher in those in the edits of those but here in castlevania there's so many soft beautiful sounding voices which are often delivered in subdued but intimate levels of volume and that doesn't mean that the emotive range or the intensity isn't there because it absolutely is it's just that it captures all of that without having to push at the boundaries which comes across as more restrained and refined as a result which ends up informing on its characters and establishes a tone of vocal performances that fits with the gothic painterly beauty that is associated with the aesthetics of some of Castlevania's history, particularly the covers of Ayami Kojima that became the dominant look of the series from around Symphony of Night onwards.
The first two seasons of four and eight episodes, respectively, take place in Wallachia and detail Dracula mustering an army of the undead to destroy all humans, an act of vengeance, and the hunters who decide to stop him. The third and fourth seasons of ten episodes each cover four vampire sisters in their homeland of Styria and their plan of mustering a similar army, but this time to control the region and ensure their own continued survival by always having captive humans to feed upon. There's a very significant distinction in their plans, but either way, human beings are going to be screwed. We are going to be covering this character by character in an order that allows us to talk through the entire 32-episode run in roughly chronological order. Most of our listeners won't have seen all of it, so again, this is a scenario where I don't think we can actively spoil your viewing experience so much as give you lots of things to look for and ponder. There were some key things I found out before we got to the end, and, and it didn't make me like it less. In fact, if anything, I was engaged more. Your mileage may vary if you don't want to know anything at all. Obviously, you've got a lot of TV to watch. But trust me, in the 90 minutes I'm allowing, there is no way that we can cover everything. But we can give you a flavour and we can spotlight the greatest strengths and what few weaknesses are on show. It will be up to you, dear listener, to decide if and when you want to pause and go devour this whole thing over a crimson bloody week. And for goodness sake, do not watch this with kids around. Expect gore on a level with most adult TV and some rare but steamy sex scenes. And as we stalk through these characters and their journeys, I want us to consider the concept of the anti-hero and the anti-villain. We can get into their delineation along the way because almost everyone we're going to talk about defies the usual hero and villain pigeonholing and instead operates within a spectrum wheel which allows for movement depending on their actions. But one of the most deeply satisfying aspects is the aforementioned character consistency. Their individual worldviews nearly always lead you to at least understanding why someone does something terrible. This is why I don't feel shock value was on the menu when the team created this. They wanted to tell a deep and rich story, and they succeeded brilliantly. And if you look at the shock value of things like Game of Thrones and Walking Dead, there isn't really much at the end of that. Because if all you're trying to do is shock people and keep them watching for more and more shock, the only thing you can really end in is a big old shock. And, and even mm. that, you, because you've spent the entire time effectively inuring your audience against the shock that you keep ramping up because yeah. you have to, you have no way of telling when, whether your crescendo shock is mm. actually going to be pitched at the right level. Yeah. Okay, so the first character on the uh, docket we have is Lisa Tepesh, someone that most of us wouldn't expect to be the uh, the first talking point, but she is the impetus for most of what happens in this. A, uh, She's the first character we see. Yeah, yeah. She's a, a human woman who wants to be a doctor of renown. She wants to help people. She is uh, very bold very English, very Emma Thompson, marches right up to Dracula's castle and bangs on the door and demands to be let in. And then when he starts doing his Dracula routine, he's all, oh, I could bite you. She's all, yeah, but you haven't offered to take my coat. You haven't offered to give me a drink. Uh, You know, uh, you're you're being a terrible host. You're rooted in hospital. (laughs) And she uh, piques his interest and his 
thing of 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 you know being lord and master sort of sort of melts away almost immediately and and there's a, a a chemistry between them and she wants to find out what he knows and she wants him to teach her and there are great secrets in the castle that go way beyond the medieval setting my name is lisa i am from the village of lupu i want to be a doctor You bang on my front door because you want to door chicken blood on peasants. Don't mistake me for a witch. Everybody out there already does that. I believe in science, but I need to know more. I've exhausted my other options, and all the stories say the man who lives here has secret knowledge. I am Vlad Dracula Tepesh, and I do not get many visitors. What have you to trade for my knowledge? Lisa from Lupu. Perhaps I could help you relearn some manners. Where is Lupu village? You don't travel much. I can travel. This entire structure is a traveling machine. But you don't, do you? Maybe you should. The world is changing. Travel like people do, you might like it. I've known you two minutes, and you offer for me to walk the earth like an ordinary peasant, while I give you the knowledge of immortals, the true science. (gasps) (gasps) My, they won't be peasants anymore if you teach them. They won't live such short, scared lives if they have real medicine. They won't be superstitious if they learn how the world really works. Why should I do that? To make the world better. Start with me. And I'll start with you. I think I might like you. And then we cut almost immediately to Lisa later being burned at the stake as a heretic by this Judge Claude Frollo bishop motherfucker who seems to be particularly smug and, and, and happy about uh, uh, destroying this uh, woman as a symbolic gesture, as, you know, just don't step out of line, ladies. And she's pleading, you know, seemingly with a, a godlike presence of, of Dracula, whom she's sent off to wander the world to learn more about people. Please don't overreact to this. I feel like you're gonna, but please, they know not what they do. It's it's blunt and on the nose. And Dracula does overreact somewhat. A little bit. And he decides to kill all humans because... Everyone in Wallachia who just stood by and let this happen, they have allowed this evil to to take place. And and there's no evidence to Dracula that humans deserve to live. We are terrible. He does. She was the absolute best of us, and we destroyed her. Yeah, she. uh, He does actually give them a chance. It's it's a subtle one, but he says that he he appears as she's after she's gone. And says, I'm going to come back in a year and wipe you all out. Mm. 
you you've I, mm. I'm gonna do this. You've got a year. There is a like get out of town. There is a, well, there is a subtle suggestion that you should either leave or really endeavour to change your ways. When he comes back mm. a year later, they are celebrating the anniversary of having wiped out this horrendous witch person, which makes him double down and go, you know exactly. what, fuck, fuck you, all of you, exactly. And yep. he then kind of slowly sets up this. Like, I'm going to destroy everyone. And it weirdly and interestingly enough, that would and should make this a My Dead Family story. But it's everything else attached to this that makes it so much more than that. I think that where it distinguishes itself from the My Dead Family trope is that that is most often used as a... this inciting incident of having lost everybody is the driving force behind this character and it encourages him to to get strong and go out there and achieve things in the world. Well, usually this it's is... the protagonist that, that who's an anti-hero exactly. and it justifies him doing terrible things. Yeah, it does. But the point is, this event made him active. Yeah. This is the mm. opposite. And we will explore that in more detail. Okay. And importantly, in a lot of those instances, after the character who is is killed off unceremoniously, but with a lot of pomp and circumstance said, oh, this is exactly why I'm going to do the next insert runtime of story here. They're usually forgotten. Mm -hmm. And Lisa is never forgotten. Her influence and her character is remembered and discussed for so much of the series and so she her absence is felt and it's not just a like it's not just a stage direction at this particular moment in the two no uh we we watched uh both uh, the overly sarcastic productions who are magnificent a whole lengthy piece on just one scene in this at the tail end of season two um but we also watched their uh, piece on fridging, and fridging seems to be it, it, it dates back to Greenland and Carl Rayner's girlfriend being murdered, chopped up, and put in the fridge to make him angry, sad. And it seems to be done, and that is a trope applied to characters who are, as you say, Toby, killed and then forgotten because the important thing is that the main character needs to be angry and justified in their my dead family. Mm. That there's no particular interest in the character being fridged. Mm. Whereas this mm. show seems to be so filled with sorrow that we don't get to show more of Lisa because she's a fascinating person. But that said, no, they don't get to show more of her as a, a living, breathing woman, but you do get to see the threads of her influence continue yeah. throughout the whole thing. You get visual reminders that she was there. You get audio reminders. You get other characters who pop up and talk about the things that she believed and the things that she was trying to achieve. And you get mm. Dracula constantly being brought back to this, is this really what Lisa would have wanted? And he is it, it, maybe not, openly and out loud to other characters but it seems pretty apparent that he is constantly questioning himself and his actions because he knows deep down that this is not what Lisa would have wanted the uh this stops in the name of my mother it endures in the name of your mother yeah, that's exactly. interchange eventually yeah. he has to consciously twist his memory of her and that's what brings him down so uh, Dracula could have come off as just 
uh, you know, furious and angry the whole time. But what he seems like, he is the focal point of seasons one and two. And season one really is just kind of a, a prototype. One and two is 12 episodes. And it, it feels, mm. like they very artfully set up one character per episode for the first four. So you get to know Dracula for the first, then Trevor, then uh, Cypher, then Alucard. So we're introduced along the way. And then uh, after that point, we're off to the races. And yeah. It's like they made these four mm. as a, this is just a proof of concept. Yeah, season one. It's a pilot season. It's a pilot yeah, season. Exactly, I was just about to say. But it most pilots like are a, shit. Yes. And, and really, like, but this is really good stuff. Mm. And it, it just feels like this feature-length introduction. Mm. It's four episodes of about 25 minutes each. Yeah. So it, it makes a nice consolidated movie most pilots when you go back to them after seeing the uh the final version of you know the, the series is wrapped or the series has matured they feel like they're just feeling the corners out mm-hmm. it looks a bit crappy they had they haven't got the handle on the characters yet they know what they're doing across these mm-hmm. four as though the, uh, similarly to uh, the, the closest thing i would actually say in terms of production is actually she-ra the recent sh- series in terms of it got made in seemingly blindingly fast speed, unless you were watching it in real time and having to wait between each season. You're like, oh, another season's out. Oh, another season's out. Oh, it's finished. And uh, that happened just over just a few years, if in fact we can actually say. Uh, July 2017 to May 2021. So that's four years. Uh, but I was waiting the whole, until we could get to the end. You know, we, we watched the first episode of Why the Last Man yesterday, and it was like, Oh, this is actually really good. After nearly 20 years of, I really wish they'd make this into a film. And then I really wish they'd make this into a TV show. And Shia LaBeouf threatening to be in it and all kinds of, you know, ideas. And like it was in development purgatory for a long, long time. And it went in and it went out and it went on and it went off. Same as Preacher. And then Preacher came along and was rubbish. And then... Finally, why the last man gets released, and, and the first episode is really, really good, and then it was cancelled. <laughs> Literally, the day we watched, what? no, the day after we watched the first episode, I feel like we jinxed it. <laughs> yeah, don't ever watch TV, folks. The way TV I... works, it's amazing anything gets made at all. It's a miracle if anything's good. And when it's good, it will then be cancelled. Very quickly. The only word I can say in response to that, the perfect, succinct expression, is (laughs) why? (laughs) I am the Bishop of Griffith. You're not from around here. No. I'm originally from Targovishta. I was an aide to the Archbishop. How did you divine that? Well, you're not running away screaming like the rest of the locals, for one thing. From you? From the baby-eating freaks of nature who apparently raid Greshit every night. I'm here to save Greshit. And how do you intend to do that? I brought you here to answer some questions, not ask them. Well, tough shit. Trevor Belmont is uh, of the Belmont line that began with... uh, There's a brief reference to Leon Belmont from the... uh, If you listen to our Castlevania game series show a while back, that was on the chronological first uh, game in the series that came out on PlayStation 2 way after the series began. But the Belmont line are kind of 
judged with suspicion. They hunted vampires, they kind of travel about the place, they're nomadic, and they go where the money is, they go where the monsters are, and they taught each other through libraries and uh, the uh, collection of artifacts and storing of materials. Mm. They taught each other how to hunt the undead and the evil and the things from the darkness, and uh, and rid the world of them. And for their troubles, for their effectively, you know, incredibly hard work, they are considered with absolute contempt, fear and hatred by people. There is a distinct repeating theme in this of knowledge is persecuted. So you've mm. got in, in the three main characters... You've got Belmont, Trevor represents the Belmont clan. And as you say, they've accumulated all this knowledge about fighting demons and they've collected all these books that nobody, least of all Trevor, who is the last of his line, has the time or the inclination to read all of. But it's all of this collective information. Anything you could possibly want to know about defence against the dark arts is there. Then you have, uh, we'll, we'll come to her in a moment, but Cypher represent the passing on of uh, oral tradition and oral knowledge. And she comes from a, a group of people who remember everything that they have to pass on. They're called and the speakers and they, they literally don't preserve things in book form. Exactly. They remember everything and they pass it on through, through their speech. And they are persecuted by the church. Basically, anyone who's trying to help them Absolutely. is persecuted and by the church and, and hated by the menfolk. Yeah, and Lisa, who is represented uh, at this point by Alucard, was pursuing scientific knowledge. Mm. She went to Dracula because she wanted him to teach her how to be a doctor because she knew that he had knowledge beyond what the, the average... 1400s person had access to at that point and she wanted to absorb that knowledge so that she could use it to help people in general so again this idea and it's it's the church every damn time isn't it ultimately they hate the belmonts they hate the speakers and by god they hate lisa tepesh but it, it's just this idea that that knowledge and understanding and comprehension of something that goes beyond what they allow to trickle out to the people must be thwarted and must be stepped on Mm -hmm. superstition is condemned something fierce in this and i think that's another reason why in that opening scene dracula is laying on the whole like i could bite you right now he is trying to rely on human humanity's superstitions to put people off he puts the like, impaled uh, corpses outside his front door just to get people superstitious so they'll leave him the fuck alone absolutely and, and this is the superstition is not for some reason that is permitted by the church because it's not so much that they can control it but the more prevalent it is the more people will keep themselves away from the truth and my god does that feel appropriate right now mm. Mm. taking advantage of that a word that came up in a review I read of um, Halloween Kills was uh, that the film has a nasty streak of misanthropy in it. And that effectively comes down to humans are shit or hating humanity. I don't think that's what this is. I feel mm. like the, the philosophy of the series is that collectively people can be just utterly despair. Like you can, you can despair collectively of people, but individually you can find reasons to keep going. So when Dracula mm. puts the 
um, people on spikes outside his door and shuts himself off. The shutting yourself away, which later turns up with, when Alucard does the same thing, is always positioned as a reaction to this overwhelm, a reaction to this peaking of disgust. And it's always seen as unhealthy and sad. And uh, at the same time, like it's understandable self-preservation, but it's it's catching them in a loop. And because they're, they mm. live pretty much forever, they're going to be stuck in this loop, this very lonely, isolated loop for a long, long time. Absolutely. And the idea that if nothing breaks that loop, and as you say, if you do live for a very, very long time, that it, it's going to feel worse. Mm. It, the longer mm. you keep yourself away from people, the harder it's going to be to reintegrate with them. Mm. Alucard, in, a lot of in particular, is the loneliest vampire I have ever seen. Mm, a lot of people really sympathised with that delivery at the start of season three, where Alucard says, "Oh my God, I am losing my mind." Mm. Just uh, seeing a quiet day for him, and he's just voicing, putting voices to dolls, and he just takes a sip of wine and realises. I literally have nothing. It's only been a few days. I th- think he actually says that. And it's just this insight to you. He's this guardian of all this knowledge, but it's as if everything that Cypher does speaking and sharing knowledge, mm. there's not much good that he has without someone to actually speak with. This is a show that introverts will warm to because they'll understand how, um, or they'll they'll be able to relate to how the 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 need to seclude yourself and to retreat is strong, but also mm. how I, how that isolation kind of takes the flavor away from life. Well, even when um, when isolation is restorative for you, and for a lot of people it is, it's, it's absolutely necessary. Mm-hmm. But in, in controlled amounts, there's a long period that Alucard has been asleep. Mm-hmm. And he says later on, he slept enough. You can only restore for so long before it then becomes, well, what are you actually mm-hmm. restoring for at this stage? Mm-hmm. Back to Trevor Belmont. Uh, he's uh, played by... <laughs> Richard Armitage. Richard Armitage, who was Thorin in the Hobbit trilogy. And there's a fascinating casting choice in that Vlad's Dracula is Graham McTavish, who played Dwalin. Now, I don't expect most people to be able to pass out the different dwarves, but one of them was really tall, kind of like softly spoken but gravelly voiced at that, had a bald head, big bushy beard. Uh, it's a dwarf, I know. Uh, but like great big axes called Grasper and Keeper. There's a scene at the end of, um, well, in the in the middle of Battle of the Five Armies where he comes to Thorin and, and, and tra- begs him to come out of his Dracula levels of, I'm going to lock myself in my mountain and kill anyone who comes anywhere near me and just hoard this gold. Uh, he's, you know, this is not the the man I know. Uh, you're a good man. Please come away from this. And Thorin says, "Who get out of my sight, or I'm going to kill you." And there's this. It's a fantastic. It's one of the best dramatic scenes in the whole trilogy. And most people will, uh, who abandoned the Hobbit uh, after film one uh, won't have seen it. But um, 
They are effectively pitted against each other in this, and really, it's actually not about Trevor and Dracula much at all when they finally actually face each other down. It's a very physical fight, but the real drama comes from uh, Vlad and his son, uh, Adrian uh, Tepesh Alucard. Mm. But Trevor is this sort of self-loathing, wandering monster hunter going from town to town, Bad-smelling drunk, I believe, is the way yeah. Cypher said bad-smelling drunk, who um, is, has the kind of look about him that gets assholes in bars to immediately pick fights. And mm. he tends to... He reacts with incredible uh, skill and just kind of rids people of their fingers at one point with uh, with his whip. And at one point, they're ho- they're one guy's eye. And I was like, oh, my God! Oh. Like it, they don't stint make... on the gore when it happens. Like it happens suddenly mm. and explosively in a kind of oh shit way. Oh god, mm. he's got armor. But it's not really for yeah. shock value so much as to say that uh, in all cases the violence is bad and shouldn't have happened. Yes, and and mm. there are times when it's somebody that we are engaged with and care about who is meeting out the violence, but it is usually portrayed under those circumstances as either. Something that they that was absolutely mm. necessary because of the circumstances, or something that we really, really wish they hadn't done. Yeah, much like Planet of the Apes, uh, this film, this series thrives on people talking with each other mm. and relating mm. to each other yeah. and negotiating with each other and effectively diplomacy. And when things break down and violence occurs, that's when things have gone wrong. Yeah, the violence is very rarely gleeful. It does happen occasionally, but it's generally the glee of a character that we already know we shouldn't like. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And uh, Trevor uh, meets uh, Cypher Belnardis, the, uh, the the speaker, who's uh, played with this kind of fierce, uh, fierce naivety, if it's possible to mm. like. She's re- she really like she has her ethos on the world, but she hasn't seen much of the world, and she really wants to, and she propels him forward. She's got the fire, and uh, she's pre- performed by um, Alejandro Reynoso. Thank you. Uh, and she's performed by Alejandro Reynoso, who doesn't have a Wikipedia page and is a, a relative newcomer. I hope she does loads more she's voice so fantastic. performance. Yeah, she's yeah. so good. Mm. Um, the two she's the t- voice of positivity on this show. She yeah. will... You were mentioning how this is a show for introverts. It's a show like about introverts for the mm. most part, but she is someone who talks about how she has lived a life surrounded by people she is an extrovert so she works as the connective tissue between trevor and alucard who are both introverts who don't get along at first because Mm. their nature is diametrically opposed to one another and one of the most quoted moments of the show is just alucard saying oh please we're not children she goes off and then as soon as the dead mother's away uh trevor just says Eat shit and die. Yes, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Trevor and and Cypher, it it very much seems like Trevor is a grumpy dog. And Cypher's like, no, Mm. come on, I'm going to train you. And uh, and sort of grabs him by the collar and draws him into this fight. Shit! What did you just say? I said shit, okay? Yes, it's just that you never, you know, curse. They never 
were used to, and then all this happened, and then you happened. Me? Yes, you. I was nice, and then I met you, and now I'm like you. Oh, so it's my fault. It's all your fault. You did this to me. I found you. Turned into a statue in a fucking tomb. And climbed all over me, and since that moment, everything has been shit. And fucking talking here. Someone who says shit. Fucking shit, hairy arse, words, giant slimy balls, shit! The, the times when he gets to shine, you realize what a great tactician he actually is, how gifted he is physically, and. But at the same time, he can't do everything, and he's not positioned as this incredibly tough guy. Like, the original Simon Belmont iconography of the art is like this Frank Frazetta barbarian, but it is immediately apparent that that kind of person in this world mm. needs someone with brains to help nudge yeah. them in the right Absolutely. direction. Absolutely, and one of the things that I really like about how Trevor is consistently portrayed is somebody who has these incredible weapons and these incredible skills to fight bad guys mm. but when his weapons and his skill let him down mm. he drinks yeah. because he doesn't have anything else yeah mm. one of my favorite comedic trevor moments comes in season two when they're holed up somewhere and the trio are holed up somewhere and they're being attacked by demons and or night creatures i believe they're referred to here but he rushes to barricade the entrance door to the basement grabbing a bookshelf plank and <laughs> returning to place it against the door until he sort of awkwardly realizes that just holding it up against the door doesn't actually do anything because the plank is far too short and he has this moment of thinking wait uh, how the fuck do i maybe, maybe if i place the plank on the ground like this and then the plank just limply falls over and the door drifts open and you can see this visible because <laughs> it opens of, the opposite yeah, he direction realizes it's yeah. an outward opening door not an inward opening door yeah just this moment of oh fuck this i'm going out there to fight them <laughs> Uh, but you mentioned the trio. There is very much a sense of the in the first 12 episodes of season one and two of this trio coming together and just kind of sparking off each other and, and fighting and shouting. It's very polyamorous trio. Like, we are flirting with the idea of this actually being, like, this kind of a, 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 a bi-tripod. Mm. Uh, and mm-hmm. it it's sold... By how fun and funny and serious and passionate and withdrawn and just how multi-leveled and multifaceted the uh, the characters are, but how they respond to each other insofar as that they've had their they've spent their lives without each other, but then they're at their best when they're in each other's company. Mm. Mm. Which is sometimes tough to uh, accept, which uh, hence the uh, immature sort of boy bashing of each other. The Belmont Hold, our family library and trove, the collecting knowledge and material of generations of Belmonts who fought the creatures of the night. That sounds interesting. If it survives, if there are solutions to the problems of finding and killing Dracula, they are in the hold. You're guessing, though. I am guessing I can't read or understand magic, but my family stored everything they found, including books of magic and whatever other weird stuff they came across. I just can't do anything with it. But you two can. Fortunate indeed, then, that I chose not to kill you and eat you, Belmont. 
and that I decided against gutting you, flaying you, and turning you into shoes, Alucard. Such a merry band we are. I will find us a covered wagon and horses if you two can manage not to kill each other while I'm gone. Oh, please. We're not children. He shouldn't die. Yes, fuck you. <laughs> Adrian Alucard in particular has a, um, a very kind of lofty sort of Lord of the Manor patter about him. But at the same time, he's sort of filled with the, the self-loathing of a, of a 19th century novel's tragic hero. He's very gothic. Mm. He's extremely mm. gothic. Yeah. He is the moody teenager identified as such by the show itself. And when Cypher calls him that, he has the most indignant look on his face mm. because it's right on the money. Uh, he's played by, um, is it James Callis, this one? Yeah, he's played by James Callis, who was, uh, if, if, does anyone remember Baltus from uh, Battlestar Galactica, that TV show from the 2000s that no one ever mentions, that was really, really well acted? He does a fantastic performance in this as well. And um, mm -hmm. being a dampier, um, which, by the way, we watched Vampire Hunter D and Vampire Hunter D Bloodlust just beforehand to sort of see whether they there was a, a, a direct through line of uh, influence, visually speaking, or story-wise. Maybe a bit, but those are some shallow-ass stories. <laughs> Although mm -hmm. I do like the fact that the end... Uh, B Vampire Hunter D. Bloodlust is the one where you realise that D himself, even though he's got a comic series of like a thousand books... Uh, is really boring in comparison to these uh, a couple of uh, other characters who, like a, a human woman who's fallen in love with a vampire who who's who will hurt himself in the sun for her. And in the end, she dies. But then the castle takes off like a rocket into space, and uh, Dee's like, <laughs> "Yeah, go!" And I feel like that definitely had an influence on on this and oh, the yeah. Castlevania series. I. I do appreciate that uh, they, the people making this clearly knew which version of Alucard people wanted to see. It was not the original NES, like, just, like, mini Dracula. It was the, like, Symphony of the Night version, and yeah. he has a bunch of the abilities from that. Yeah, there's, uh, they're, they're, they could have gone all out fan service on this, and yet mm. it is packed with little references that do not lampshade themselves. No, like the, one of the not first, intrusive. If you keep an eye out, you'll see almost all the secondary weapons, like the knife, the cross, the holy water, the axe, all get used at some point by Trevor, along with Alucard's floating sword. But it's all visual, they don't make a big deal about it, and there's no real fanfare. One of the first uh, beasties that gets fought is a combination of that demon and his vulture man buddy with the spear, the, the first yeah. boss in Symphony of the Night. But they don't go, ah? Ah? Mm. Like in a, in a Ready Player One style. See what we did there? Yeah. Also, I mean, the thing, the big thing with the two feet and it's all teeth, that's that really obviously with a snub nose, the, yeah. the horrible mm. thing from uh, Harmony, Harmony of, Despair. of Despair. It's from one of the mm. DS games. I, I want to say uh, Aria. The first one? The, the Dawn of Sorrow. Mm. But it took me a second to actually register how directly a copy it was because I was too busy going, mm. oh my God, that thing's hideous. 
It's not, it's not, yeah. it's not a copy. It's lifted from the That's mythology I mean. of the games, the, yeah. the imagery. that They put stuff oh. in there. The whip, uh, Trevor starts with a leather one, as you per usual in the games, and then upgrades mm. to this... Belmont family heirloom that's called the Morning Star. Now, mm. the original name in the games is the Vampire Killer, but when Dracula sees it, he goes, I am not an e- uh, just a normal vampire that can be killed by it. Just to illustrate, we get that mm. it's called the Vampire Killer. That's a bit of a blunt name. Yeah. But then again, so I, it's Morning Star. I appreciate that they aren't so beholden to the lore of the games that they go, oh man, look at this really cool whip. Well, why is it so cool? Oh, well, it's because Leon, like, killed his wife or something and her soul's in it it's just like no it's a cool metal like thing on a chain and it makes beasties explode it's you know we like this thing and also with lisa i don't know the original source material well enough but when i looked at the wiki and saw what the original games had to say about her character all it had to say was that uh dracula married her because she looked like his first wife brilliant yeah the original yeah. games are not deep by comparison. No. Even the uh, the lengthier, talkier, more anime ones that uh, followed afterwards. There's a lot of kind of, why are you in here in the castle? I'm looking for things. Okay, I'll see you later. Mm. There's a, there is a, a push-pull to be had on in a lengthy and very involved series of anything, books, games, TV, mm. whereby something can have the appearance of depth because there's so much fucking lore you could drown in it, mm-hmm. but that doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. equate to depth of theme and character. Also, similarly, they they had a the amount of music that I packed into the video game show that we did. They had so much to choose from, and they mm. could have replicated so many classic tunes. But I feel like just like with What If, where you're cocking your head and going, "Is that is that actually uh, Chris Evans?" No, it's someone doing an impression, Josh Keaton. <laughs> if you heard classic music during a uh, a dramatic moment you'd be like oh that's so sad but oh my god the uh, the the original castlevania ding theme is playing right now it's it's, it's- Is from the multiplayer game Harmony of Despair. But you can see how it would be a little distracting if you were trying to carve out a dramatic scenario. You spend episode after episode crafting these characters until you've earned this moment. And then a big chunk of your audience gets lost in, oh my god, man! 
that's they're not interested in well, that. There's one point when it plays. Um, is it Bloody Tears? Yeah, they know when to deploy that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's during an action scene where they want you to be like air punching. And the action itself, mm-hmm. it rivals Legend of Korra in terms of mm-hmm. absolutely stunning. Trevor and Cypher and Alucard just like spring into actual action. Because usually when it's other characters, people are being killed horribly. But when it's them, it's bad creatures and demons and things and usually it just it, it that's when it becomes the power fantasy and, and really cool the other scenarios of violence are not really cool and are in fact quite frightening mm. and i i think it's also interesting and also commendable that they do it's a show called castlevania mm. but when you actually look at the range of episodes and scenarios and everything mm. it's not directly replicating the games as frequently as you would imagine Mm. in terms of what you envision castlevania to be just some dude called belmont jumping around and whipping things and fighting dracula at the end in his castle they never like whip a candle uh, and find a candelabra yeah only though i'm not sure i only saw this at the very end of my second rewatch of the series Mm. after the credits they do have a little sprite animated thing of netflix trevor just whipping a candle and getting the heart it's great uh i want to play that game i know and please please konami like just make it we we keep asking you to do it, and it just never happens. Make a, but, a new Castlevania game with redone sprites that look like this, but the feel of one of the uh, older games. That would yeah. Be, or the feel of Dead Cells. Like, the, the fluidity mm. of Dead Cells is amazing. Or Metroid Dread, you know? Or it's, it's a good season for that, you know? There's a lot of things to take inspiration from. But I digress. The, yeah, I mean... That's that's what I appreciate is that this isn't set out to just be like providing you with all the recognizable iconography. Mm. It has ideas and it won't be afraid to really veer off the character sheet that exists. Mm. Yes, they have Alucard feel like the iconic version of Alucard, but for a lot of the other characters, they do something to actually make them distinct like trevor in the original game looks like nothing like this but mm. this one is enthralling and hilarious and he feels vulnerable but capable and with everyone i mean we'll get to isaac but isaac is a million miles off how he is in the games mm, indeed uh the dracula is drawing to him various vampire lieutenants from around the world and generals and i actually really liked this most of them don't get speaking roles but they're all from different cultures so you get to see the vampire mythology that has arisen over the 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 beginnings of civilization and how they kind of labeled the parasitic bloodsuckers that they conjured to be afraid Mm. of outside of their homesteads. And one of them is Godbrand, who's this, like, Viking vampire-ish, kind kind of of Nordic, voiced by Peter Mm. Stormare, who's this blunt instrument who's like, what the fuck are we doing here with all this? If we kill all the humans, what are we going to have to eat? He's he's raising some pertinent questions. Mm. What's odd about it, and I agree, I love the visual design of all these vampire generals, but I find it so odd that 
of all of them, the only one who really gets a speaking role is Godbrand, mm. because it basically means that he's the voice of vampire of Dracula's court. Yeah. And it, it like so when they go out on a raiding party, it's just like um, I always seriously say that that Japanese uh, vampire lady was taking orders from fucking Godbrand. Yeah, he's really, a, he's a he's a hammer. Like I said, the, he's a blunt mm. instrument, and she seems more like a scalpel. She's got these black mm. eyes, like a doll's eyes. She can turn herself l- into smoke. She seems really mm. interesting, and like she might have things to say. But it, and it, I like that we get a little bit more with her in season three, but it's very mm. retroactive, which yeah. feels a bit sort of like okay, we had all these interesting things, and mm. we still have things that are compelling to show you and talk about, but mm. we just didn't necessarily prioritize this. And that's fine. And then Camilla turns up. And Camilla is kind of fascinating if you go into vampire lore. She predates Bram Stoker's Dracula character by quite some way. That It was uh, a character named uh, Varney the Vampire was uh, one of the first ones written about. Varney the Vampire or The Feast of Blood is a Victorian-era serialised gothic horror story variously attributed to James Malcolm Rymer and Thomas Peckett Prest. It first appeared in 1845 to 1847 as a series of weekly cheap pamphlets of the kind that are known as Penny Dreadfuls. The author was paid by the typeset line, so when the story was published in book form in 1847, it was of epic length. It was the first story to refer to the sharpened teeth for a vampire, noting with a plunge he seizes her neck in his fang-like teeth. And Varney the Vampire is in Castlevania later on. He's kind of a loser, and he's played by Malcolm McDowell. Camilla was written in 1872 by the Irish author Sheridan Lefanu, predating Bram Stoker's Dracula by 26 years. At Camilla was a female visitor to a, a nobleman's house who turned up after a coach crash and then just slowly seems to come across as more of a vampire type. And we saw a, a recent film uh, uh, adaptation that was just a straight out, this is a lesbian romance that puritanical Christians cannot allow to perpetuate. Mm-hmm. So they bash Camilla's head open with a rock. Yeah. Um, just like to take the opportunity to recommend that, tracking that down if you can. It's called Carmilla. It was directed uh, by Emily Harris and it came out in 2019. If you can yeah. find it, it's great. It, it's, it, it's actually most like Heavenly Creatures, mm-hmm. the uh, uh, Peter Jackson movie. It's, it's a tragedy and it feels that way and the vampirism is kind of more of a something's going on under the surface here it's almost symbolic Mm. Uh, and we mentioned it on the uh interview with the vampire show uh, which came out last week but uh we also saw the hunger which is another fantastic example Mm. of uh, vampires who live for an incredibly long time and don't can't relate to humans on on that level and in castlevania uh, Camilla, the character, repeatedly refers to humans as being like pets. I am Carmilla. I am come from Fasteria to join the War Council. Your presence was requested some time ago, Camilla Styria. Indeed. But your mighty castle keep moves around. And with such mighty vampire generals advising you and prosecuting your war, What use could you have possibly had for a mere regional ruler? And yet, my lord, your forces were repelled from a single city-state. Your generals are in disarray. So I feel that, perhaps, it is time to offer my insights to your great cause. And what insights have you, Carmilla? 
Why was this new wife of yours never turned? What did you say? You married. You had a child. And yet you did not make her a vampire. Why was that? Were you simply keeping a human pet? And if so, why is vampire society going to war with the world over it? I will speak with you alone. Attend me. See me after class. Mm. I really, <laughs> really liked the fact that they this, this question crops up a few times. And the obvious answer, which nobody ever has to say mm. because the audience knows, is Lisa wouldn't have wanted him to. Mm. Yeah. And when Carmilla keeps asking, why did he never turn her? Yeah. She can't mm. have been that important. It illustrates, and we get to know Camilla really quickly, that Camilla, she keeps going on about, and I followed the orders of mad, sad old men, old, mm. cruel, mad men. And I decided I was never going to follow the uh, orders of mad old men anymore. And she's learned all the wrong lessons and is reenacting all of that cruelty and madness herself. Yeah. She, is, she, she does strike me as somebody who has gone completely off the mm. cliff with her own past that we don't see that much of but it is made evident that she's been abused and tortured herself and ultimately mm. it has broken her but in such a way that she's then reformed herself into this I literally don't care about anyone else mm. just me mm. and the people who are in my immediate vicinity but unlike Bojack Horseman's mum we don't get to see what that was so we don't get to really engender sympathy exactly which means that she is kept mm. as one of the most clear villains mm. she is fairly shallow because yeah. we don't get to see her motivations see this is those, why those I'm so into mm. flashbacks in New Century yeah. where you're like why is this person behaving like this oh but she reminds mm. me a lot of Elle in Kill Bill. Kill Bill. You can kind of mm. feel around the edges of what probably made her like this. Yeah, but the bottom line is it doesn't matter mm. as long as she continues to be so dangerous that you've got to address that before you start feeling any empathy for her. She's best characterised as at the end of the uh, second season, Dracula fails and she is waiting. Like, she has sprung her trap because she was actually trying to invade Dracula's castle, which can teleport and move around. And she forces them to tactically move the castle to the village of Brela. The port, specifically. The port of Brela. Mm. Uh, because she's amassed her forces there who cannot walk over, who, who being vampires, cannot move across uh, running water. Uh, but they have uh, assembled technological bridges to effectively invade the castle and take it for themselves. She wants this castle uh, for her own military decision-making, which she then enacts in uh, seasons three and four. And she takes Hector, who um, we're about to talk about, one of the most interesting characters, and having shown him that uh, Dracula has failed, they wait for the sun to go down, and she bides her time because she can't be out in the sun. She'd turn to ash. And then she says, right, Dracula's failed, so you're coming with me to Styria. And he's like, ugh. But he's not, like, I'm not coming with you at all. He's kind of directionless at that stage. But she immediately has a collar put on him, and he gets grabbed and shoved around. And mm. then he uh, rebels a little against her, and she gleefully beats the ever-living fuck out of him. 
for mm. no apparent reason. Like he, like it's it, certainly not through necessity. He's not massively helpful to her when she asks him. She has to, in the end, blackmail him into uh, getting the castle mm. uh, moved. But he does nothing to particularly engender a hatred of him. And when she beats the shit out of him, it's not because she's desperate for power that she feels she's had taken away from her. She just does it because she can. Mm. And it was Mm. fascinating and sad watching her because it was like, you could be so much more powerful by going, you're coming with us. And that's all. Like, you're a human being. You but can't she, say no. It's it's kind of epitomised Or if you do, fact, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I'll just take what I want. It's mm. kind of epitomised by the fact that earlier she referred to Hector as a puppy. Hmm. That he, that's it. He is a child and, an, and a pet and somebody that she doesn't, she doesn't despise because there's no point, but she sees him as so far beneath her. A lesser being, that yeah. act mm. where she beats the shit out of him entirely unnecessarily just because she's really pissed off generally mm. she's taking mm. it out on him fundamentally that's yeah. what she's doing it's Carmilla it's symbolically kicks down yeah yeah she is kicking a puppy that is like the level of just sort of grim vindication that she is going for that makes us go wow this is mm. this is something else she perpetuates a, a level of you know dracula was an old, old foolish mm. man he was trying to destroy mm. everybody which is obviously mm. stupid what, what what i want to do is the same thing but keep all the humans captive and mm. control the land like i said and uh, feed on them and yeah. another vampire, one of her sisters, later on says, we want this because of stability. What vampires, mm. what those who live for centuries seek is stability, something quantifiable. They need to know where the next meal is coming from. Mm. Because their com- comprehension of time is completely skewed relative to ours, it's almost like, again, humans are experiencing things in dog years to them. Mm. Yeah. They can't cope with the chaos that human lives, particularly at this juncture in history, Mm. because we're in, what, the 1400s somewhere? Mm -hmm. Life was chaotic back then. (laughs) Very short and aggressive. And mad. Yeah, that's life on the prairie. Last night I saw a jackrabbit with a woman's face. (laughs) But that's the thing. The, The... what the what the vampires seem to be seeking, as you say, is is that some form of stability and consistency to make things make sense. What our heroes are seeking is knowledge and Progress. sharing that knowledge and, and a consistency mm. through the people, not a consistency through a frozen state of being that doesn't change. Mm. And I think one of the other reasons why Carmilla is triggered to go off on Hector like that at that particular point, as you say, he's made these tiny little motions of rebellion at this stage. Mm. And while this is not explored in great depth even later on, I think part of it is her great plan involves penning human beings. Mm. Anything that says to her, you know, they might rebel in some small way and that's going to make your job a lot harder is really going to piss her off. But this is dumb as shit as an actual decision. Mm. It's not logical. And obviously she's not being logical anywhere. I'm not saying all characters should behave logically. In fact, if anything, Mm. behaving illogically can inform you on their characters. Mm. But she really, really needs Hector. She needs him alive and complicit and beating the fuck out of him could potentially kill him and it'll definitely Fine make mistake. him decide like yeah. you could just break his neck you're you're a, a vampire smacking him around 
And and her peers say as such. They say, like, look, you have made our job a hell of a lot harder. And they repeatedly say, like, this is what she does. She comes up with insane plans Mm. and just does things like seemingly by impulse. And in that sense, she is quite unlike a vampire because she's not looking for stability. She is looking to take things and, you know, just keep changing her target from target to target until she gets to a point where she like has taken everything and she almost she even confirms that she hasn't even she doesn't think far enough ahead to consider or even care about whether the end goal of that is something that will make her happy Mm. and she is so volatile that even the people around her who consider her a friend and she does consider them a friend friends of her they there's just no sense you wonder how they've even managed to endure this long as a unit but she thinks she's superior to dracula because the way she sees the world she is thinking far ahead she's thinking further Mm. ahead than him because in Mm. her mind he's not thinking about food beyond the end of this particular war Mm. and she doesn't realize that he doesn't think anything beyond the end of this war that's the point the Mm. the bit that i mentioned earlier that made me think oh my god this could actually happen is when alucard is describing what dracula wants to do and i'll see if i can find the bit if it's available youtube's tricky like that i'm still not completely clear on why you don't catch fire in the daylight I am half human. My mother's name was Lisa, and she was mortal. I would very much like to hear the story of how that happened. (laughs) She actually showed up at his front door. She found the castle and banged on the front door with the pommel of her knife. She sounds interesting. Oh, she was remarkable. She beat on the door until my father let her in, and then demanded he teach her how to be a doctor. Wait, Dracula taught a human woman how to be a doctor. (laughs) What was first? Bloodletting. (laughs) God, you still think you're funny. My father... Dracula? ...is a man of science, a philosopher, a scholar, and knows things our society have forgotten three times over. Do you still not understand the enormity of what we're doing? He's gone mad. And from that, there is no recovering him. Shame. It's a tragedy. It's a repository of centuries of learning. He could have changed the world. I think he might have, if Mother hadn't died. She'd sent him out into the world. And that's why I wasn't there when the bishops took her. She sent him away? She sent him to travel, to learn the true state of the world, true nature of humans, and how they live. She was turning him. Imagine if he could have aimed all that knowledge at improving lives. If the religious inquisition hadn't proved true all of his worst instincts about humans. And now he's going to use her death as an excuse to destroy the world. Oh, the world will still be here, Belmont. Trees will still grow. Birds will still sing. Animals will still hump away in the undergrowth. But you won't be here. And you won't be here. None of you. The sun will still set. But you will not see it rise. There will only be Dracula and his war council in the hordes of the night. He writes in great books, you know. He used the covers himself from oak and wraps them in the preserved skin of the people who he hated most. 
and he writes plans, I've seen them. Ideas for darkening clouds and making them as permanent in the air as the frost of the north. Create strange flying machines that pull shrouds across the sky to block out the sun. Imagine it. A world without humans, under endless invented night. And Dracula and his castle. His revenge so horribly complete that there is nothing left to do but look out over a world without art or memory or laughter and know that he did his work well. That he did it all for love. And he says it in such a matter-of-fact style that it really sells. This could act- Not only could this actually happen, it's what Dracula wants. He mm. wants the world to be uncomplicated and that people complicate things by by existing and having all this potential and squandering it. And he includes mm. vampires in that because yeah, he does. Because when the things, humans die out, the, vampires, the vampires will also will die out. Suit, exactly. I'm not eating fucking pig's blood. <laughs> so what he really wants is for the earth to get etch sketched. He's like, just I, I can't comprehend there being anything after Lisa. Yeah. So what I'm doing here is finishing off the conclusion to this, which is Lisa is gone, mm. therefore everything else has to go too. Mm. And it is worth bearing in mind, and again, this, it, I think, harkens back to what you were saying about there are moments sometimes when you think, yeah, I kind of get it. This is pre-industrial revolution. Mm-hmm. If you If humans disappear at this point, the Earth is on a pretty good trajectory. And another species will eventually evolve and uh, take the uh, top of the food chain and and start developing civilization and maybe do better than us. What we're dealing with here across the the whole series is fascism. Dracula, in wanting to commit genocide to make the earth pure, is absolutely a fascist. Mm -hmm. And Camilla wanted to keep people effectively in concentration camps to be uh, kept like chattel or uh, like chickens and then uh, fed upon is also absolutely a fascist. And everyone who assists with them is assisting a fascist. So it's very difficult to not call them villains. Most of the ones who are more complex are misguided or hope that things will turn out in one way and then over time begin to realise things are going to turn out in another way. But ultimately what they are working towards is an extreme form of order. One way or another they want to set up a scenario which is good for them, Mm. to hell with whether it's good for anybody else, and then they want to maintain that scenario. We watched the... Mm. uh, We listened to the We Hate movies on the shitty uh, Sylvester Stallone Judge Dredd the other day, and it's a movie from the 90s that doesn't seem to get the comic, and I know there's a lot of Dredd fans out there, but it is a condemnation of fascism, which Dredd is... He rep- the, the judges, him being Judge Judy and Executioner, represent extreme right-wing police state tactics. And the, 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 the film seems to revolve around, we created in the Janus Project, which we deliberately called it, kind of like Icarus 2 in uh, Sunshine, uh, the, the perfect lawbringer who would absolutely uphold this lawful neutral code and his exact opposite, who's chaotic evil. <laughs> It illustrated that if you on a long enough timeline, what you end up with is the head of all the judges and one remaining judge who's just killed the last judge that was not judgy enough Hopping to be the in a top circle, judge. Trying not to break any laws. And then all that then is required is for the head superintendent judge to 
uh, ask Judge Dredd to kill himself so that he can take all possibility of anything chaotic out of the world so that then he can take his cyanide pill and be done with it. Because that's what lies at the end of fascism. Two dudes, one of whom obligingly kills himself because he so fanatically believes in the, the forced order of the other. Last one out, turn off the lights. Yeah. And and that's the that's the sad thing about our tendency when things are scary of getting behind what we perceive as strong leaders yeah. who want to bring back purity. Mm. Because because at the we, end of that purity, fucking no one left. What we miss mm. every time is that rigidity is not strength. Rigidity is actually very very brittle and weak yeah. if you mm. eat it hard enough. And that people are filthy and if you try to purify the human race you don't get many of anything left. Mm. Uh, and, and and that filth is kind of fine. It's who we are and relating to it and understanding it better is progress. And hating progress is again pushing us back kind of towards fascist. let's eliminate all, all filth from humanity. Yes. And... Dracula is pushing and pushing on this, and it is described at least twice as the world's longest suicide note, because it seems like his heart's not really in it. He's waiting for someone to stop him, and it eventually mm. falls. While the trio do uh, finally get to the castle, it falls to Alucard to really take him down. Mm. And it's a grueling episode because it starts off, like, like I said, with the, with the sort of amazing action sequences. But then Dracula and Adrian are just bashing each other around the castle in this Matrix-style vampire fight, which again is awesome to watch. But then the injuries just start getting further and further and, and, and it seems like Alucard is definitely going to lose this one. It sucks away the music, just making yeah. each like almost bone-cracking punch feel like, oh, no, stop, stop. And because you're flying around the, the castle itself, because they literally keep punching each other through walls and floors and mm. ceilings, you're seeing this uh, kind of slightly austere luxury, if that's not a contradiction in terms, that, that Dracula is surrounded by being smashed mm. and broken and wrecked. And it culminates in Adrian's childhood home, and you get much more of an idea that this was the castle he grew up in, and he grew up with love. And there's portraits on the wall of his mother, and his mother and father and him together, and that family unit, that trio, that he adored and felt happy and safe and secure in. And there's a flashback earlier on to just after Lisa's been murdered by execution, uh, to Alucard saying, you're not going to do this, you're not going to take this out on the humans, and Dracula smashing him down, and that requires him to take a year to uh, heal as he sleeps. But Dracula now gets to the point where he's about to kill Alucard, and it's absolutely heartbreaking to see the capacity for actual love in the heart of this abuser and this fascist, because they kind of do Thanos... But it's the other way round. Rather than when he's got Gamora on the top of the ledge and going, I love you so much, that's why I have to kill you. This is where Vlad lets go. This is where he realises that the best thing in the world was Lisa and that the thing that came from him and Lisa together was Adrian and that he's about to destroy it. And it's, is, it's the point where he reaches the end of his road. That is one of my favourite 
conclusions to a villain's part of the thing that sort of stops them mm. because I, I shan't give away spoilers for a different series but there was another streaming series on Amazon Prime that if you saw a certain meme that got a moment that got memed to hell and back you'll know what I'm talking about but that show did a very similar scenario of a father just beating their son like down to the oh, point I know of what you're death. About. Yeah. And I think that this moment here is that you can argue the merits and whatnot of both moments, but this one I think the fact that it doesn't go like over the edge, I think that if Dracula had a bit more time he might have reached that point. But I it's the fact that you literally see the red mist drain from his eyes as he has the clarity and I can't think of a better way of putting it than what he says of my boy I'm I'm killing my boy please I'm killing our boy we painted this room we made these toys it's our boy, Lisa. Your greatest gift to me. And I'm killing him. I must already be dead. Yeah. A beautiful thing that I've I noticed of that whole sequence, that episode, is that it's your the first and last words that they say to one another are the same, but the weight behind them is so different because I believe that it's like when Alucard confronts Dracula at this before the start and the fight begins, he says, father, and Dracula says, son, and there's venom there. But at the end, it's that sort of inverted mirroring where Dracula says with sort of with actual they say this with love this time where he says son and with regret Alucard says father and I think that's a perfect conclusion to that scene I don't use that word a lot but this is if there was an episode to get like 10 out of 10 on they, they achieve it here and I think that some people I've seen have issues with the third and fourth season because they feel like the it reaches a peak here at the conclusion of the second season. Mm -hmm. And I can get that, but I think that there's something to be said about having a show which has this moment of peak emotion and what comes after is also dealt with. And I think that the places that Alucard's character goes after this have merit and it's because of this this devastating moment something that is acknowledged to be the thing that was d right and needed to happen but that doesn't stop it from destroying you 
we need villains in our stories and we need them to do terrible things so that we can explore why we as a species do terrible things and we can process it. So to have someone who is guilty of these awful inclinations and these awful acts not necessarily forgiven of all of that but definitely step down and understand when it's time for for them to just go and that was something i really wanted to see in thanos the uh, thanos that they meet at the beginning of uh, endgame should honestly have turned up way later in the film and it, it should have been a case of I overreacted. I probably shouldn't have wiped out half the uh, universe, and I will do what I can to help you to walk this back. I overreacted. You overreacted? Is that your explanation? No, I didn't say I was going to explain myself. I said I was going to tell you the truth. But that's the thing, if he could realise what he lost with Gamora and try his absolute best to bring her back and to and just to, to realise what... Because that is the antithesis of all that Thanos is right shit. In the end, they actually made Thanos less interesting. Mm. He was unrepentant going, oh no, I did it. It was all me. Gets his head cut off. And then... His past self looks at that and goes, Yay! He did it! Me, I did it. I'm going to do it again. I'm the best. I did it. Let's split second when your back was turned, and I'd do it again. And then, like, like, he's about... Before Tony takes him out, he's like, You know what? I'm going to start again, wipe everyone out, and then make a bunch of people who are going to be grateful for how fucking awesome I am. Click. Oh, no. I ain't got no stones. No, you haven't. Anyway... But the difference between that and the Dracula here and the heart-wrenching finale, like the actual season two, there's a whole extra epilogue episode, which I really appreciate, that rather than giving us a load of, like an extra bit of stuff in the middle, they really take their time in, so what are you going to do now? And it's almost like if this is the last episode we ever do, it's going to be a really great last episode. And honestly, the way it finally ends is an extension of that. It is, yeah, very they, They're very careful not to undo the good work that they established with the end of season two. Mm-hmm. It, it ends just with Adrian alone in the castle crying. And that, like, that's, that's such a risky way to finish your series. Because you expect people to then sort of finish unsettled as opposed to, ah, what a lovely ending. Um, or, or, ah, evil is punished. Yay, we did it. It's, it's very melancholy. It understands the story that it just told it, mm. because there could be no other resolution but something that is simultaneously this melancholy, tragically beautiful image of this man just alone in his castle Mm. with tears streaming on his face but it manages to be that but also something so human and intimate and unglamorous where it's just he is letting go of any sort of visual appearance and he is just like letting the tears come and not caring how he looks or anything like that or how he sounds it's Mm. it's that rare type of crying that you don't actually see in 
in media so often because so much it's the single tear that comes down and not someone making sounds that don't sound human that sound like they're coming from a place where they are truly hurt and they just can't stop hmm. And I think the, uh, the the visual element of it is really important as well because the difference between the the sorrow that Dracula felt that drove him to the rage to the actions that he performed, ultimately Alucard is his hope personified because he is this fusion of Vlad and Lisa, because he is this fusion of human and vampire. He has the potential to recover from sorrow in a way that humans can, mm. combined with the long view that vampires mm. have. That's perfect. And one final thing I will say about Alucard, because while I remember, is that I I do commend them for having a scene at the start of season two where they keep his name, which is just inherently silly. It's mm. it's it's Dracula backwards. Oh my god! Uh, and they actually make it work, and they make it something that's very sad because his his name is adrian that was what his mother called him but what the people called him was the antithesis of dracula and for the task that he has now it's the name that he chooses for himself knowing that this is something that would make her heart break because the act of killing his father is something that there is no way that he can do that thinking this is what his mother would want. Mm. The beginning of season three picks up with Alucard still alone in the castle, only now he's crafted two clumsy dolls to keep him company. What do you think, Trevor? I think I hate everything and everybody, so I'm going to get drunk on beer that's been brewed in an old sheep carcass, and then I'm going to stick my tiny penis in a dead dog I found in a ditch to make hay babies or something, because I am actually more stupid than mud. You are a horrible, terrible person, and many other words for horrible and terrible, because I know all the words because I'm smarter than everybody, and one day I will go back to live with my flippant family in a cart which makes me better than everyone, and you will all die in a fire, a big one. Oh my god, I am losing my mind. It's only been a month, I think. These third and fourth seasons, it feels honestly like it's two massive movies mm. if you if you mm. watch them. Yeah, three and four are definitely kind of separated off. Yeah. Uh, like I said, uh, concerned with these four sisters uh, who live in Styria, in uh, a castle. Now, the means with which Dracula was going to invade humankind was more involved more than simply several vampires. It involved an army of undead creatures, and to generate them required the services of a devil forge master. And there are two in uh, this series. There is Hector, and there is Isaac. 
And if you remember back when we did the uh, Castlevania show, uh, the other PS2 game that isn't the one with Leon the First Belmont, Curse of Darkness, uh, is the one where your lead character is Hector, who did help Dracula and then quit after a while because he was he realised that he was hurting people like it wasn't fucking obvious. Um, <laughs> Look at what you do, dude. And a very flamboyant, crazy, very white version of Isaac. <laughs> In Castlevania Dynasties, however, Isaac is black and uh, was previously a slave and horrendously abused by his white Templar Knight master. You thieving little shit! Ah! I didn't steal anything. I'm trying to learn. I found you dying on the street. I gave you a home and fed you, and all you were supposed to do was work quietly and watch my back, not go behind my back and fuck around with the tools of my trade. Sneaking down here, going through my books. I'm sorry. What did you think you were gonna learn? How, how to help you? Oh, you actually wanted to learn so you could help me do my work. Why? Because. Please, don't be angry with me anymore. Just tell me, Isaac. It's all right. Because I love you. Oh. Oh, bless your heart. Even after everything in your life, you're still a sweet boy who believes in love. I'm sorry. I just wanted to help. Well, I love you too. <laughs> That's why I do this. This is how I love you. This is how I teach you. You stop fucking around. You do as you're told. You never use the word love again. No, Isaac! Like, uh, we've described loads of complex characters. These two guys are maybe even more complex than everyone else. It's especially really difficult to place them in the hero-villain or even anti-hero-anti-villain characters. Mm. They perform evil acts and they want to do good things. There's there's Mm. something very pivotal about these two in terms of how the other characters fit around them in the morality balance because the two of them individually are the most helpless people here. They're humans. They are humans. They are very vulnerable. They are surrounded by vampires. They are both mortal and neither of them have communities behind them. Mm. Ultimately, Mm. Cypher is human. They were rejected by their communities. They're very alone. Cypher is human, but she has elemental magic of her own and she has the community of the speakers behind her. Mm. Trevor is very alone, but he's got the the history of Belmont. They have dynasties. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. These two devil forge masters have only the commonality between them and previous devil forge masters that they will never meet and they will never learn from. And ultimately, <laughs> they have both been, as you said, either by choice or by circumstance, cast out from whatever community mm. they were in to begin with. And their skills and are Victor made. Frankenstein like bringing corpses mm. back from the dead. Mm. That's mm. it. Yeah. Yeah, and if that is what they make, if that is their what they do to build a dynasty, that is 
they're treated as quite disposable. They're the they're the mobs that you throw, so that mm. you know in the first level you can rack up a bit of experience, and they they make basic enemies in Castlevania look very threatening in this show. Yeah. But even so. I know it's a flea man. (laughs) I never saw a flea man. Um, (laughs) And I think that's probably for the best. Because then you would just have an episode (laughs) of Trevor just going, these fucking things. (laughs) 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 But um, no, so what they make is always for someone else. And Mm. it's always for, you know, the expectation is that you've, send them in waves so that they can fulfill a purpose Mm. and it's only at the end of the second season at the start of isaac's journey where he has this profound realization of like i shouldn't have to deal with shit from people every time i want to have a drink of water Mm. and i don't need to Mm. i could have an army and he says i might like an army and that starts his journey. Yeah. Isaac in particular. Like Hector uh, comes off as a little more naive than Isaac, who that scenario you just heard where he's being whipped was a multi-tiered betrayal which shattered his worldview. The most disappointing, disheartening, despairing moment in this young man's life, causing him to take the spiked flail around his wrists and then absorb the pain and horrendously Game of Thrones-style murder this guy. Like, thumbs in the eyes, head like a melon, crushed. Mm. Because he did love him, but this he now sees only cruelty, and his estimation of humankind is always teetering on the edge as a result. And Isaac carries this moment with him for the rest of his life in the form of self-flagellation. And a key detail is that before he redoubles his efforts, the Templar hears this, Mm. believes him when he says, oh, you really mean it, don't you? Mm. Bless your soul. I love you too. And then starts, this is how I love you. And that is a formative moment because from that point on, Isaac has no reason to believe that humanity will ever show him anything other than cruelty. Mm. Because if this man, this man that he loved tells him in a moment of clarity that he does love him but that love is twinned with cruelty at that point and again this goes back to the the worst of humanity is shown at every turn to be represented by the church it was the church that crushed lisa that resulted in dracula's course of action this this man that isaac works for is clearly a representative of the church in one form or another whether i thought he was a priest but uh, Mm. whether as a priest or a a templar knight it's it's the same uh, body of belief that he's representing and while we don't see hector being cast out we do learn that the reason is because people were uh, scandalised and horrified by the fact that he was using his necromancy skills to bring animals back to life so that he could have pets. He's not hurting anybody with that in the slightest. But it's Clearly, a terrifying someone's power. gone, well, this is against God. We can't have that. Mm. If he was female, he'd have been burned at the stake immediately. <laughs>
It's a strangely agnostic series. There's never any proof that a devil exists or a god exists. Religion mm -hmm. is most definitely a driving force throughout it, and faith in people and faith in the spiritual is definitely handled, but it's in a way that never confirms that there is any divinity. Mm. There are even moments where people get to planes of existence which would be reasonably accurately described as being like hell or heaven a or little purgatory bit of, of heaven of some kind but the point is when they get there it's like okay who's in charge no nobody one. <laughs> Th this has a lot in common with his dark materials a lot yeah when lyra balacqua gets to hell it turns well when lyra balacqua gets to the land of the dead in that it turns out oh it's just a dark city where everyone just sort of stands around forever good, bad, otherwise that's where all the souls go, it's fucking miserable. And it's like that is a, that, that book is a constant condemnation of uh, organized religion as well as a literal embodiment of the almighty himself who turns out to just be a feeble old man with no real particular power and who travels around in a Pope mobile. They all seem to be pointing at is that we obsess with this idea that there's an authority that is going to either punish mm. us or reward us for what we do in life. When the bottom line is, it's just us. Yeah. The mm. philosophical conclusion in both his dark materials and in Castlevania is it's our responsibility yeah. to make heaven on earth, yeah. to actually you, be mm. decent to each if, other. When it comes down to it, you want to be a good person. Be a good person. It shouldn't take the threat of somebody who is going to reward or punish you afterwards to make you be a good person. Yeah. Can we talk about the captain now? Go for it. Okay. Uh, one of the very... I do think that I can say this. One of the best scenes in the entire series comes in the third season when Isaac has managed to get a, a boat ride from a captain and this from the moment you meet him he seems like a bizarre character because so far isaac is just traveling around with his like pokemon crew of <laughs> and everyone is saying no you can't stay here you can't stay here and there's one guy who gave him a mirror that he has to call sir mirror so that he can uh check like you know find my friends on uh hector and laugh when he sees him just in a bad situation but when he gets to the port he essentially is expecting to i'm going to have to kill this captain and his crew so that i can take the ship and the captain just sort of like expresses a mild interest in this and is like my friends and i need a ship to take us to genoa well this is my ship right here I believe I will kill you and all your men and take it. You could. You surely could. But if he did all that murdering and taking, who would be left to sail it? Sailing a boat cannot be hard. <laughs> well, if it weren't hard, then why would sailors exist? You make a good point. But I've already made the mistake tonight of expecting humans to make decent decisions. Perhaps you weren't offering them coins. I'm not offering you coins. Yes, you are. You are offering coins for my ship and our skills. And you're worried that the beasts won't eat any of my crew. <laughs> you are a strange man. 
I'm bored. Sailing with you, Sir Ford Master, will be many things. But I doubt it will be boring. Will you be coming aboard this night? I am Isaac. What is your name, Captain? Name? <laughs> God knows forgot it long ago. Doesn't matter. I'm the captain. That's all you need to know and all you need to call me. Do I have your word, Isaac? You do. And your coins, I trust. Oh, yes. Then we shake hands as travelers who have made an agreement to sail together without threat or fear. Agreed. Or being eaten by beasties. You will not be eaten by my beasties. <laughs> Excellent. Lads, we have guests. We sail for Genoa. So the scene, I've looked at it, I've watched it this morning, 10 minutes long, and it's just Isaac and this captain talking in their quarters, and the captain just asks him about his life story. He is literally saying, tell me your life story. And... He asks some of the most pertinent questions in of what Isaac wants to do because he is chase he's chasing after Hector because he believes that Dracula died as a result of his betrayal and Carmilla as well. And so the captain says, So what are you going to do? Uh oh, I'm gonna get revenge. Okay. Then, then what? what? And after that, he asks so, once you do this, are you going to take up your old master's cause and wipe out all of humanity? And Isaac's response is telling. He says, I might. And the captain says, hmm, in a way which sort of recognizes that Isaac doesn't sound entirely convinced. And he says, have you ever heard the maxim that if you uh, uh, like get so caught up in another person's story you don't you don't get one yourself and he says that's because i just made it up just sort of illuminating the <laughs> fact that he creates his own story as he goes and to which isaac says you realize i have a knife right not too impressed but he the captain suggests to him that there is actually like something maybe he should try to actually construct rather than to destroy and he when isaac talks about how the world is cruel the captain says i've been cruel it's a cruel world maybe we all deserve to die but maybe we could be better too if you kill us all you end human cruelty yes but you end human kindness too and that is the heart of the series to mm. me, that it does not shy away from the fact that superstition and humanity are capable of such cruelty. But there are characters who fight and actually express and sh like encourage kindness. And if we get rid of all of that, we do get rid of the blackest parts of humanity's soul but we also get rid of the brightest parts of it too we destroy our potential based on our previous actions mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
the effectively the soul of humankind and the its continued existence is on constant trial throughout this series mm. it's it's deeply philosophical regarding dracula has decided there's less value in there being people than there being no people but he's mm. not really sure which is why he loses momentum. Well, as you said, part of it is that he's expecting that somebody will stop him. Yeah. The end game for Dracula is that he is dead one way or another. Mm. Either someone challenges him and kills him, in which case, achieve, or everybody dies and then he starves mm. to death, in which case, achieve. Either way, mm. technically, he wins. Now, Hector uh, agreed to work for Dracula on the proviso that people would be thin, their numbers would be thinned out and that they would be kept and uh, maintained. And effectively, it's what ends up being the plan for the four sisters. And he, he does think that people en masse are bad. But he also doesn't necessarily think that they should be wiped out completely. They should be mm. controlled and, and kept in mm. humane, merciful environments. Yeah. Which, when you put it down on paper, you're like, oh, he's crazy. Like, the, the, the both Forge Masters are mad in a way that puts them uh, way out of frames of human reference, mm. just in terms of their scope on the world. So like, he's saying to a fascist, okay, as long as you keep people in, in camps that are prison camps and not death camps. And it's it's like, okay, so... Did I say death camps? I, I meant happy, happy camps. camps. It's not like he has a revelation, oh, this is cruel, but he loses his taste for it fairly soon. And uh, the, the, the cruelty with which Carmilla conducts herself... Uh, really wears on him and obviously her, her needless cruelty to him when he should technically be an honoured guest and you're going to help us because we're actually going to do what you actually wanted. Dracula mm. wanted to kill everyone and let's face it, uh, if you believed in that, you should believe in us. But what because she hits him so hard, he's left this kind of crushed puppy, like captive, this prisoner... So she, so the various other sisters kind of get involved with what they're doing. And one of them is Lenore, who is a diplomat, played by Jessica Brown Findlay. And she's from Downton Abbey and brings that sort of clipped British uh, tone here. And so she sort of sits down outside his cell and they conduct a negotiation. And he's naked and bruised and uh, sort of shy and... He makes a sort of a clumsy grab for her throat when she gets too close, and then she shows him who's boss and sort of smacks him down again. But then what develops is this strangely uncomfortable, dominant, submissive relationship between the two of them, where Hector seems to respond well to sort of being pushed around by her in a kind of a... I believe in the sub-dom world, it is referred to as being a brat. This isn't getting any better. I need the bloody hammer. Is that better? So use a bloody hammer. There must be a thousand bloody hammers around here. No, it's got to be special. Oh, your special hammer. <laughs> Would you stop? It has to be made from scratch in a very particular way, or else it won't work. Like a flute with no holes. Right. For fingering. <laughs> Would you stop? So when you blow it, nothing comes out? Good God, woman. I'm bored and it's fun to horrify you. Indulge me. And think of something to tell Carmilla. She's getting very cross. 
Oh dear, how sad. Never mind. Seriously? You've supposedly been making your magic hammer for weeks. Could you make something simpler? A stick or a coin or something? We all use different things. Isaac used a knife. A hammer works better for me. Oh, well, make it work faster. If Carmela loses her temper, I won't be able to stand in front of you for long. You'd stand in front of me? I've been doing it for weeks. Oh, yes. Yes, I suppose you have. Well, thank you. I'm working on it. You know what I'm going to say. Hmm. Work faster. Yes. Yes. But it needs to be perfect or nothing will come out of the end. Ugh, you're disgusting. But they're both deceiving each other. Everybody underestimates Hector. The penultimate episode of season three is one long sex scene between Hector and Lenore and Alucard and two Japanese vampire hunters who've asked him to help them and who have kind of flirted with him on and off uh, over uh, over time. Um, And it seems to be sort of building to something. But rather than it being kind of two loving sex scenes, both of them are shot like build-ups to murders. And they really stretch this out. And it's, uh, I think, I believe that's the one which is juxtaposed against uh, Isaac creating a a boss from the game series, a recurring boss called Lee. he's fighting it. Yeah. Uh, oh, so fighting it. Yeah, okay. The Legion is just a conglomeration of bodies. Just all of these reanimated corpses all in this giant morass of people that's quite terrifying. But this whole episode, you're like, oh, God, this is tense. Oh, God, this is tense. Just fucking get it over with. Oh, God, this is tense. And it just keeps going and stretching. And it's, it's, it's unbearable to watch. And it ends in betrayals that are all disappointing because you really wanted things to happen in a good way between these mm. characters. But at the same time, it plays out in a way that you're like, I, I can understand why with this... Uh, we're going to sort of be shy on st- uh, on on detail on how the the whole thing ends and and what develops here, um, because it is definitely worth seeing. But it, uh, to be, I think around about the middle of season three, I was like, it would be so much more interesting if all four sisters were very strongly conflicted verbally with one another over the plan and what to do. But the way it ends up, without going into detail, they do delineate off into different courses of I want this to be what we do and eventually the the sisters we haven't uh, uh, mentioned Striga and Marana uh, one of whom is the sort of tactician and and quite um, uh, fairly wise and reserved and tends to be non-aggressive the other one is this sort of giant like noble solid woman him on a nail file her him on her giant nail file oh my god it's something that she uses to make her nails smaller it's gigantic <laughs> like she's got this sort of wild she barbarian like hair mm. yeah she's a mm. she's a battle maiden and there's this one impressive as hell scene of her fighting in the daytime in a giant suit of armor with this 
amber sunshield over the face and a raven helmet and her wild hair flying out the back. She looks like Nightmare from Soul Calibur, but not gross. Just awesome and imposing. They, they discuss, you know, what are we going to do now? And one of them says to the other, maybe it's best if we don't have a plan. Like the idea, like we've always got a plan. We're always going to feed on the humans. We're always going to kill all the humans. How about we just live day to day? And this is in contravention or is perpendicular, philosophically speaking, to Lenore's contention observation that vampires crave stability. Because living day to day and not having a plan isn't wholly predictable. It does leave the door open for chaos. Striger has this, I mean, I love that sequence. It's in one way somewhat unnecessary because the point, it's not actually a flashback because it interrupts their conversation when oh. they're out sort of scouting, essentially assessing if uh, if Carmilla's plan is actually feasible. Mm. And at this point, they are running into all these complications and the two of them are actually discussing it, saying that Carmilla always comes up with a plan but never sees it through and they underestimate what Lenore actually brings to the table. Mm. And Striga is sort of still at this point thinking that no, like we can probably make this happen. And then they're attacked during the daytime and she puts her daytime armor on and it's this almighty like action sequence that is absolutely 100% to anyone who recognizes the iconography, a tribute to Berserk, the right. uh, anime slash manga series by very sadly passed away recently. And that was really felt it's a kentaro mirror uh kentaro mirror i'm uh apologize for mm. mispronouncing that but that is a dark fantasy series that is hard to get into i know enough details about it to suspect i will never really be comfortable to like sit through that mm. but i respect the hell out of it and all you need to do is just google berserk panels and it is some of the most gorgeous artwork you've seen in any sequential storytelling medium and there is this armor that is very much like that where it's someone who is just shrouded in it and there's also a character in the first dark souls game that is covered in a similar armor artorius who this sequence is essentially this loving tribute to like to Berserk, to Dark Souls, to all this stuff that kind of has this Ouroboros like snake eating its own tail. Like even Gary Oldman's Dracula in the prologue of the mm. uh, uh, Coppola film, which we still uh, absolutely adore. That when he's going around impaling people in that red wolf armor for the church. Mm. And it's uh, so on one sense, it's kind of a, an excessive scene, but it's a. I really love that it's there because it shows that. The the original Castlevania series has probably inspired so much. We it was mentioned in your previous show on the games that mm. in a weird way Dark Souls kind of became the modern equivalent of Castlevania. Yeah. It sort of took dark fantasy and video games and evolved it and did something different. And now this is doing sequences that take inspiration from Dark Souls and its sorts of inspiration. And it was they they couldn't have known it. They didn't do this as a result of the uh, mangaka's tragic passing. It just was one of those bittersweet 
coincidences that this like tribute happened but after this sequence happens Striga comes in and says the people we were fighting weren't soldiers they were just farmers they came in with like essentially nothing she's walking around in a tank and destroys all of them and they're really just coming at her with nothing but like basic bows and some pitchforks and she realizes that no matter like if they see this plan through even if they succeed there's always going to be resistance and that means that since she's the soldier and the the woman she loves is the tactician they're always going to be fighting Carmilla's war. And that means that as long as that's happening, they have to see their roles through, which means they will never stay together. Mm. So as a sequence, as a sequence of sequences, they don't necessarily 100% gel, but they also just accomplish so much that it's one of my favorite moments. And Striga and Marana don't get a lot of time in the series, but in the, small amount of time they have they establish themselves as just one of my favorite things that i favorite set of characters that i take away from this series that uh, that conversation about what do we do next let's not have a plan was actually like it was specifically they were discussing that vampires always trying to feed always trying to eat like that they were examining themselves as a mm. species different from humanity but obviously reflective of our impulses. Mm. I love I love that scene. It's, be- it's because so many vampires make themselves miserable by what they choose to do. Mm. It's rare to be able to see them decide, you know, fuck it. It's too much. Mm. And there Did is you- that that parallel between these decisions that they've made and this path that they're on is very much one that we know humans have taken. Mm. They are the predators. Mm. They are the top of the food chain. Do you know what the creatures at the top of the food chain shouldn't do? outnumber everybody else on the food chain. Yeah. That's why mm. Deacon Frost's plan in Blade is fucking stupid. The whole, I'm going to make everyone in the world into a vampire. Good idea, Deacon. Then what? Oh, I've got um, some humans in this fridge. Brilliant. How long's that going to last? Got seven billion vampires to feed? to put everybody well, at the top of the pyramid. Your, that doesn't work. Stupid asshole. Your, you're a vampire. You can't have a we'll cross that bridge when we come to it scene. Yeah. You'll combust. <laughs> ah, very good. Very good. There's even a sort of a reference to that when Godbrand says, what are we going to fucking eat? And uh, Dracula's like, I've got like some blood and shit. Godbrand's like, how much? What after that? And Dracula's like, shut up. Because it's devastating it. to my case. <laughs> But, like, the reason that Dracula, like, gets away with it is that he basically just stands up straight and says, I'm fucking Dracula. Yeah. Shut up, sit down, and how he just says, little Godbrand. It's going to keep making noises. <laughs> yeah. So much excellent vocal delivery. I oh, think yeah. that's part of the identity of this show is just that, like, I was... It's not necessarily a show that has a lot of quotable moments. It's just that, like, the sound of everyone's voices. Mm. There's there's steamy sex scenes, but honestly, just listening to everyone speak in this is oozing with gothic sex appeal. Gothic sex appeal. Hmm. It's got a... Uh, it's some, several of the characters in particular are softly spoken enough to really kind of segue into that ASMR area. And in fact, when looking for certain character quotes on YouTube, I found 
ASMR solely comprising of this character talking. Or that character talking. There were a whole bunch of them. One thing you mentioned a while back, and I had to bite my lip and just let you carry on talking, but it's a great conclusion to this whole show, was the word complications. Fascism, and I didn't prepare anything for this, but fascism inherently oversimplifies complicated scenarios. It tells people who want everything to be simple and black and white... It's okay, we'll make everything simple and black and white for you. All you have to do is follow, all you have to do is obey, all you have to do is agree. By the way, we'll kill you if you don't. And we'll kill anyone who disagrees with us. It's that simple, it's that black and white. And fascists Mm. always find complications because they've been busy saying, everything's very simple. And then it turns out that things aren't as simple and their plans fall apart because humanity as a morass, as a legion, is simple. Individual people are very complicated and an individual person can make a world of difference in a conflict. They can be the horseshoe nail. It's why one of the best conclusions in this show, and I won't say who reaches it, but it's something that a character's final scene, they talk about what is next, and it's not definitive. There's this feeling of just looking ahead, but without anything concrete, and their final words are just, I'm going to live, and it's open-ended, and it is the only conclusion that you can reach that makes sense, that I think is wonderful Mm. and ultimately our the human condition is a conflict between our need for things to be simplified for us because things just get to be too much and our need to explore complexity and i think this is one of those shows that illustrates that conflict fascinatingly it's hypnotic the whole way through There's other characters that we haven't mentioned. St. Germain. He's a mysterious human figure who's voiced by Bill Nighy. And then there's Varney the Vampire, who I've already said is voiced by Malcolm McDowell. The cast on this thing is amazing. We don't have time to talk about everyone. We've pretty much made our points. And we Mm. don't want to spoil everything. There's bits of the show where you're like, wait, what? (laughs) And we definitely don't want to say everything about it. Like, occasionally, we'll do a show, and the first thing anyone responds with on the Discord or Twitter is, I can't believe you didn't talk about XYZ. We can't talk about everything. The best way to put that across is, ah, bit I really loved about this show was XYZ. Therefore, you've made your point, and you haven't made it about our fundamental failing to cover literally 
everything. <laughs> what we love is seeing you folks talk about this stuff and, and sparking conversation with each other. Yeah, it's like a class discussion. You don't expect the teacher to turn up with absolutely everything. Yeah. Otherwise, there'd be uh, no point in Otherwise, discussion. the teacher turns up, reads you not only one textbook, but every textbook. And then you sit there and with then your... leaves declaring themselves the winner. <laughs> After 80 years, with your massive long beard growing, and the teacher goes, and I believe... That's everything. I die. <laughs> and then as they die, one of the students at the back of the class goes, I can't believe you didn't mention. Oh, fuck off. And then they cough dust and then fall over dead. <laughs> I, I say this as a co-host of a show in which we rigorously talk about single chapters of multiple books of a series even we don't want to be the definitive final word on it. We're not, like, that is not the point. <laughs> it's to offer our stance on it and then let other people go, oh, yeah, and then that and this. Like, there's, it's not confined. It's not confined. It's, it flows. You can't con put it in a pen or say, like, like a couple of vampire, I'm done. I'm done. I can't believe you didn't talk about that old woman who's like, oh, I'm, I can feel it in my bones. She's my favourite character in the whole <laughs> series. Okay, well, having said that, I will uh, mention one final thing because I would be kicking myself if I didn't include it. Mm. I love the way that they actually did include the throwing the wine glass moment but subvert it by having it be included in a scene where they're reflecting not on what is a man but what is a vampire nice the endless thirst of school of movies is slaked on a monthly basis by our patreon where this week you can hear us talk about queen of the damned the terrible non-sequel to interview with the vampire. Next week, June. Week after that, Carnage. And I brought in Malcolm McDowell to say thank you individually to all of you at the top tier $15 sponsor level. So thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Outridge, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksh, Marty Huey, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. And I think that's going to be all for Castlevania Dynasties for the time being we sincerely hope that we'll be back discussing further escapades because considering the world laid down here while they have a tough act to follow there are definitely more stories to tell there's a whole like i said dynasties there's a belmont line there's christopher mm. there's simon there's uh soma cruz who lives in the future well 
Do you know who they have confirmed they're doing the next series on? Who? Richter. Richter Belmont. Mm-hmm. My man. Okay. Yep. So before we go, Toby, would you like to tell the folks at home where they can find your body of work? Well, since I already oh so subtly uh, pimped my show in the middle of that, uh, you know that I am a co-host with Greg Downing on Through the Wind Door, and we talk New Century, great series, you may have heard it. You should check it out, Alex. Uh, but It sounds right up my alley. We have a very exciting lineup of interviews on the horizon, especially if you've been listening to Stone Spring Maidens. And if you haven't been listening to Stone Spring Maidens, Go listen to it. It's my favourite New Century book so far. And that changes regularly, but it often comes back to Stone Spring Maidens. Let's hear what Toby had to say about Stone Spring Maidens after having just read the book. Having said that, I think what makes this text so much more appealing than some of the utopian texts that I read is that this very much puts the focus on characters because a lot of these and these are utop- these utopian texts were things from centuries ago where they're mm-hmm. more they read more like just a barely narrativized museum walkthroughs of someone's particular philosophical projections and they think like yes it would be absolutely very good if we did that oh yes it would be good for that mm, yes rinse and repeat for 300 pages with this it explores that through the perspective of established characters and the characters who aren't just talking at one another but developing relationships with one another which is why this that sort of conversations about the world feels like a conversation there's an interaction between worlds and not just a here's my D&D setting notes that I'm <laughs> putting in a book form to throw at you and oh my god if you did a D&D setting of some of those books Jesus uh, but this one I would definitely be up for it's maybe I'd get to make out with Batar or Ganny I don't know um <laughs> And as this episode goes out, Stone Spring Maidens is nearing its final episodes on the New Century Multiverse podcast feed. So if you're new and you like the sound of this, you can start listening right now. And by the time you get to the end, you'll be champing at the bit for those last episodes. What does purple mean for you? Purple means I know my way. It's supposed to be gifted to me by my wife. Oh, you have a wife? Nope. I don't need the judgment of somebody else to tell me I know what I'm doing. I guess not. Well, it suits you, conceptually. This actively made Atar smile. Remind me to be 40% less mean to you. No, that's a bit too generous. 25% for now. And what does blue signify, Ganny? Did your wife gift you them? Harry's curiosity was stirring. Uh, unmarried here too? I also chose this myself. Blue means I'm a good talker. He glanced across at Penny. And green is for fairness. In response, Penny nodded and touched her own green-gloved hand, as though reassuring herself as to its meaning. Harry was far away for a moment. My mother wore blue. She murmured softly, barely audible over the hammering of enormous propellers. She was one of the best talkers ever. It also means you listen. 
It stands for integrity and intelligence. Yeah. Harry wiped her eyes. That was her. <laughs> what about red? Passion. That fits. Would anger come under this category? No. Wait, why would wives want to declare that they had an angry husband? She is a fast learner. Atal was genuinely impressed. Yes, they focus on the positives, although there are some tacit underpinnings. Like, a lady could be declaring, This one is unruly, and yet I tamed him. The benefits of passionate men are, of course, their sensuality, determination, and zest for life. And the opposition of Bloom means that the downside of all that loquaciousness can sometimes be inaction. I suppose, if you're focused on talking the whole time... Harry pondered, but did not finish the thought. Does green mean anything else? Besides fairness? To this, Penny put up her hand. I chose it because... Calendula didn't gift it to you. No. In fact, I was wearing it before I met her. Gifting oneself a color is something rebellious kids do. We're supposed to grow out of it. We just haven't yet. None of us. He shrugged, and a peculiar connective energy flowed through the little group. As I was saying... Penny spoke up a little huffily. Green can equate to healing, which was perfect for the medical profession I wanted to get into. But it also means kindness, and I think that's one of the most important elements of the world. And you don't just see it in people. If you study animals, you'll see them being beastly with one another. But if you look hard enough, you'll also see them being kind. And that's one of the greater meanings behind my green. It's sort of a reminder. You're one of the kindest people I've ever met. So it's working. At this, Penny became exceptionally self-conscious and had to look away. An aspect of Green's fairness is justice. Ganny reached up to squeeze Penny's shoulder. If someone's sporting that color and something deeply unfair happens in front of them, you can pretty much be sure of a strong reaction. It's an extension of kindness. It sometimes makes them do foolhardy things. That too. And if you have been listening to Stone Spring Maidens, you'll definitely want to tune into the upcoming episodes of Through the Wind Door, where Greg and Toby will be interviewing our amazing cast on this adventure that we've all gone through together. And the final thing I'll recommend is, not from me, but a brilliant two-part video series from A Midnight Spectacle on the art of Castlevania. It's an aesthetic retrospective and it goes through everything that the franchise has done from main the old whip and jumps to the uh, Metroidvanias to the spin-offs and even the Netflix show. So definitely check that out and check out more of their other work. They're great. Coming up in the next few months, we will hopefully have shows on The Eternals and Ghostbusters Afterlife. But next week, the first of a pair of shows wherein we discuss maybe the finest side-scrolling brawler series ever, Streets of Rage. Until then, I've been Alex Shaw. 
I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. out.